The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Now, today's scripture reading is from Luke 15, verses 25 to 32. Now, his oldest son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Good morning, friends. My name is Charles McGowan. I, at one time, was a pastor of this church. Some of you may remember that, a few of you at least, but... uh, beginning in 1988, and until July of uh, 2003, I had the privilege of serving this church as pastor, and I'm one of two pastor emeriti uh, who uh, still have a relationship with this church. The other is Dr. Wilson Benton, who was here for about six years, and um, we uh, appreciate his ministry. Unfortunately, he's not in good health and uh, is now in Abe's garden with dementia. But um, it's a great joy for me to be here uh, today. My assignment today is to look again at the parable of the prodigal son, which probably would be better entitled uh, the parable of the loving father. Because the father is really the main character in the story. But uh, last Sunday, if you were here, uh, Elder John Arndt focused, led us on a focus on uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the younger brother who went into the far country and uh, squandered uh, <clears throat> his inheritance. And, um, and during the course of his message, he actually projected onto the screen Uh, Rembrandt's famous painting, which is hanging uh, in in Russia in um, uh, a beautiful six-by-eight canvas, the parable of the prodigal. And if you study that very carefully, you'll not be able to find anyone in that picture that you could possibly identify as the older brother of the prodigal because... The passage, the story that Jesus tells makes it very clear that he wasn't there. He refused to come in uh, to, uh, to celebrate the uh, arrival of his son. 
And so my task today is to uh, open up for us and expound and give us opportunity to reflect upon uh, the rest of the story, which begins at verse 26 and continues through verse 32. But before we begin, uh, let us join our hearts together in prayer. We're thankful, our Father, for this, your most holy word. And we recognize that it's true, that you've given it to us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and that it's ours for daily light and for daily food spiritually, and um, for the, uh, the uh, quenching of our thirst, uh, which happens regularly in our lives. So we pray now that you would give us the grace to draw the curtains on the world around us so that we might not be distracted by anything that would cause our minds to wonder. And we pray, Father, that you would enable us to not only understand or write uh, the meaning of this particular passage of Scripture, but that you would, by your Holy Spirit, show us how it is properly applied uh, to our daily living. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Before we get into the passage, there are two things that I really feel like I need to say. Uh, first of all, I, as many of you, uh, was a great fan and devoted friend of uh, Pastor Tim Keller, who founded uh, Redeemer Church in New York City. As a matter of fact, I was one of about 10,500 folk who joined the 3,000 who gathered at St. Patrick's Cathedral last Tuesday uh, afternoon for service of praise and thanksgiving for the life and ministry of Tim Keller. Um, uh, and I'm told that thousands upon thousands continue to watch the video of that service. And I mention that because Tim Keller really is known for many aspects of his teaching, but one of the things that he is best known for is one of his early books called The Prodigal God, which deals with the story of the prodigal son. And I want you to know that I'm very familiar with that book and that I have listened to every sermon that's ever been recorded and put online um, that he has preached on the story of the prodigal son. And many of those uh, sermons I've listened to twice because I listen to podcasts and sermons oftentimes when I walk on a daily basis in my neighborhood. But uh, I say that because as I expound this section of Scripture, uh, you might hear things if you listen to a lot of Tim Keller's uh, uh, sermons or read a lot of his material, you might hear things that sound like Tim Keller, and that's because I got a lot of things from him. And so I don't want to protect myself from the accusation of plagiarism by making that clear up front that uh, Tim Keller has helped me so much in, in my understanding of the parable of the prodigal and, of course, the second part of the story, which we'll look at today. The second thing I need to say, kind of an introduction, is in order to properly understand this story that Jesus told, you need to understand the target to which he was speaking. He was speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious bigwigs of his day, who had begun to follow him and criticize him 
and actually accuse him of uh, hanging out with the wrong crowd. And uh, the, uh, <clears throat> the early verse of uh, chapter 15 of Luke says that they muttered among themselves as Jesus was teaching, which kind of means that they were impolitely talking about him as he taught. But uh, <clears throat> one of the things that they criticized him for was the fact that he hung out with, with the tax collectors and the sinners. He actually ate with them. Uh, he probably sat down at coffee shops and drank coffee with them. And uh, as far as they were concerned, that was very unbecoming and uh, something that contradicted everything that he stood for, that he would hang out with those kinds of people. And in response to that kind of criticism, Jesus tells in chapter 15 of Luke's gospel three very, very important stories about being lost. Uh, the first is uh, uh, about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep, and all of a sudden he is missing one of them, and he leaves the 99 and goes and searches for the one that's lost until he finds them. And then he tells a story about uh, a, a widow lady who is very, very poor, and she loses a coin, a very, very important coin, and, and uh, she does not rest until she searches her house turns everything upside down, so to speak, and finds that missing coin. And then he tells a story about a father who has two sons. And one of the sons goes into a far country and is lost, at least lost to his father. And, uh, and the story is about uh, uh, the father uh, waiting for the son to come home and yearning for the son to come home and how much he misses his son and the great rejoicing that takes place when the son finally returns home. And the whole point of this, as far as Jesus is concerned, is to help the scribes and the Pharisees to understand that they might consider the fact that they themselves are lost and that there's a way for them to enter into a vital living relationship with the eternal God, the God and Father of Jesus Christ himself. And so as we move into this story today, I want to tell you a true story about a, a prodigal son that uh, actually uh, has been a part of this church in days gone by. And I feel the freedom to tell it because he openly tells this story. And as a matter of fact, he told his own story from the pulpit of this church on one occasion. But it's about a young pastor named Tom. And uh, Tom and I served Christ as young pastors, though he was younger than I, but uh, we served Christ as young pastors in Metro Atlanta back in the 60s and 70s. And uh, I got to know him, and I was very impressed with him because he was very bright. He was an outstanding communicator, a very good expounder, an expositor of the scriptures. Uh, he was a, a bright and effective leader, and uh, we got to be friends. I was so impressed with him that when I was called by God to another ministry down in South Alabama and needed an associate pastor, my first thought was to call Tom. And so I called him and uh, uh, presented to him the option of perhaps praying about coming to Dothan, Alabama to be my teammate in ministry. 
And he actually came to Dothan and visited with us and spent the weekend with us along with his wife and two beautiful little blonde-headed girls that uh, were part of his family. And, and yet uh, he felt that God was calling him to another place and we never had the privilege of working together as a team. He became a senior pastor of a, a sizable church in greater Atlanta and moved back to Atlanta. <clears throat> I kind of lost track of time, of Tom, and, and then uh, after several years, I got word while I was still in Alabama uh, that uh, Tom's ministry had collapsed. Uh, it had collapsed in a very sad way. As a matter of fact, he had uh, engaged in marital infidelity and in the process had destroyed his own marriage and not only destroyed his marriage, he destroyed the marriage of his youth pastor uh, and his family as well. And uh, the word came to me that he had resigned his pulpit, that the presbytery had tried awfully hard to bring him to a place of repentance and brokenness and, and uh, dealing with his own sin, but he refused to do so. And uh, so presbytery had no choice but to uh, remove him from office, uh, take away his ordination credentials, and went so far as to remove him from the privilege of participating in the Lord's Supper. I heard that and I was uh, distressed to hear it. And, uh, and I must confess to you that I was a bit judgmental when I got that news because I began to uh, uh, accuse him of being uh, a hypocrite and of, of being uh, totally selfish and, uh, and a man who was only playing games with God. I lost track of Tom until uh, one day after I had moved to Nashville, uh, we were meeting still in the, uh, in the only building on campus in those days, uh, in the gymnasium of the building just across the, the, the crosswalk, and we called it the Sanctanasium, and, um, and I noticed after the service that day as I was greeting people as they were leading, leaving worship, out of the corner of my eye, I saw a man that looked familiar. And then I discovered that it was actually Tom. And, uh, and so after the, uh, the crowd had left, Tom moved over to me and he said, do you remember who I am? And I said, of course, you're Tom. And I called his last name and I embraced him. And he said, well, um, you probably know all about what's happened to me. And I said, well, I've, I've heard the story. And he says, my life is in deep trouble. I've made a mess of my life. My wife and I have just moved to Nashville and I desperately need your help. Could we have a long meeting together? And so we arranged to meet the next morning at Shoney's, which no longer exists there at Interstate 65 and Old Hickory Boulevard. And we sat in the back corner and we had a good long conversation. But after church that day as I went home, I began to reflect and think about Tom and the conversation that we had had. And then all of a sudden, God brought to my attention how I had been very critical of him uh, when I first heard the news about what had happened in his ministry and how his ministry had collapsed as a result of his own sin. And God brought me under deep conviction and brought to my mind the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son story. 
And I became deeply convicted and found a quiet place in my home and went to the parable son, uh, the prodigal son story and, and spent a long time on my knees before God, confessing to God that I'd become a very critical, judgmental uh, uh, older brother of Tom. And the next morning I woke up well uh, before daylight and continued my time before the Lord because I knew in an hour I would be meeting with Tom. And in the process of meeting with Tom, we laid out a plan, uh, a plan for him to be reconciled not only with God, but also reconciled with a large number of people uh, for whom, uh, from whom he needed to ask forgiveness and uh, to be uh, reconciled. But in the process, God taught me a very, very important lesson because I saw clearly that my role in his life was a role of an elder brother and I wanted to be faithful. And so in the process of reflecting on this, on this story, and particularly the, the character of the elder brother, God taught me some very, very important things which I want to share with you today. The first one is this, that it's actually possible to be very, very close to God and yet so very far from him. The prodigal son was very open about his own unhappiness at being at home. He probably de determined at a pretty early age, probably 12, 13, 14, or 15, that he really didn't want to stay there very much longer. I don't know how he came to that conclusion. It may be that he was watching too much television, too much Netflix, uh, too deeply involved in social media, uh, watching uh, too many X-rated uh, uh, pornographic films on his uh, computer. I don't know what caused him to, to do it, but when he became in his late teens, he said to his father, you know, I, I really want to, uh, to try my hand at living alone. Would you consider going ahead and giving me my part of my inheritance and allowing me to leave the home? And to my utter surprise, the father agreed. Probably not immediately, but ultimately agreed. And so the story is the son was, the, the young prodigal son was not at all uh, uh, devious about it. He was open and transparent and forthright about his unhappiness at being at home, his desire to go to the big city. And so once he got his hands on the money, he bought himself a a Z3 BMW, red uh, convertible, and fancy clothes and gold chains for his neck. And as he dressed up, he would uh, leave his shirt unbuttoned down to probably almost his navel. And, uh, and he um, one day jumped in the <clears throat> Z3 and, um, and headed to New York City. And there he bought him a fancy penthouse, a penthouse and uh, began to make lots of friends and attend lots of parties and live the good life, so to speak. It wasn't that way with the elder brother. Uh, the elder brother seemingly had a completely opposite lifestyle. He worked hard on the farm. He lived in the big house. He 
Uh, he had his own bedroom in the big house, and uh, he was up at daybreak and worked until dark and seemingly was quite happy until we get into the story and we find out he wasn't happy at all. He saw himself as a slave, as a servant. He saw himself as, as just uh, um, uh, very, very bitter toward his daddy. And we just began to figure out that he was living very, very close to his daddy, but he was very, very distant from him. And in a real sense, he never was, never felt like a son. He never really felt close to his father. And in his heart of hearts, he probably yearned for the very same thing that the younger brother yearned for, the bright lights, the big city. The only difference between the two of them, one, he was willing to wait until his daddy died to get his inheritance. And then he would live in the big house and he would have fun in the big house and he would do with it what he wanted to do and so forth and so on. Uh, the point of the matter is there wasn't an awful lot of difference between the younger brother and the older brother, except the older brother just played it a little bit more uh, subtly and with, uh, uh, with a more devious spirit. And so the day comes when uh, it all begins to fall apart for him. Tim Keller says in his, in his book that Jesus here is telling us that there is another category for, light, for, uh, uh, for <clears throat> category for lostness. He said the, the, young, the young son teaches us the obvious. You can be lost by doing bad things and going to bad places and hanging out with wrong crowds. But the elder brother teaches us that you can be lost while doing good things and living a very respectable life. Uh, you can be lost while acting religious. Uh, you can be lost while being regular in church. You can be lost while giving money to, uh, uh, in the offering plate and, uh, and living kind of a superficial charade of a life. And Jesus is telling us that both men were equally lost. Well, it's easy for us to play those kinds of games, particularly in the Deep South. Uh, that's the kind of church culture in which I grew up. It was just sort of the thing to do. If you wanted to uh, be well thought of in the community, you needed to join a church. And if you were particularly prominent in the community, you'd probably be elected an elder or deacon. And, and uh, so on one occasion when I was in seminary, I ran across an older seminary classmate who shared me with me one day. He said, you know, I was a member of the church and an elder in the church for 15 years. And I didn't have the foggiest notion of what it meant to have a personal relationship with God. And he said, it was only by the grace and mercy of God that God penetrated my heart one day and showed me that I was just playing a game, that I was being religious and I was being good and I was doing all of the right things, but I was so far from God. I even knew a preacher one time who was converted 10 years into his ministry had gone 10 years as a pastor and never had a personal relationship with the living God. 
And so that's one of the things that we learn in this story. It's possible for us to be very close to God, to deal with God in, in a religious kind of a way, and yet be so very, very far removed from him. That was the case with the older brother. But also I learned that the older brother teaches us this lesson, that he was trying to earn his father's favor and blessing by his good works. He figured somehow that if he would work hard and prove himself that his father would be especially nice to him and generous to him and give him special privileges. And so we see him in the fields working and uh, he's probably so intent on what he's doing uh, that he's oblivious to the fact that all the other workers have gone and so he begins to move toward the house. And he gets closer to the house, he hears music, and pretty soon he gets close enough to smell the roast beef that's cooking on the open fire in the backyard. And he said, something's going on. And so when he gets close enough to a servant, he asks the question, what is happening here at the big house? And the servant says, well, haven't you heard? Your younger brother has come home. And your dad is preparing a great party for him, a great feast. And everybody's invited, and you're invited. And the brother became angry, and the servant says, why don't you come on in? He says, no, no, I'm not, I'm not going in. And so the servant goes in and whispers in his father's ear, and he says, your, your other son is, is out there, and he's very angry, and he's not willing to come in. And so the father goes out and uses the, the most tender, loving word to refer to his brother, to his, to his son. I can see him in my mind's eye putting his arm around his shoulder and said to him, my dear precious child, technon is the Greek word, my dear precious child, my dear precious child, why don't you come in? Your brother is here. Your brother who was lost has now been found. Your brother who was dead, in a sense, is now alive. Come on in and celebrate with us. And the son's response was, Father, I have slaved for you. I've worked hard. I've never disobeyed you. I've always done what you've asked me to do. I've been a faithful, loyal son. And you've never so much as provided for me a party with a, a skinny goat, much less a fetid calf. It somehow just didn't seem fair. You see, he saw, he saw God as, he saw his father as one who was kind of like a, a God who only responded in response to our hard efforts and our hard work. Who only gave back after we gave to him. And so he made that, laid out his case and he said, Father, I've done all of these things. I've been faithful and good and slaved for you and you've never done anything for me. He was really saying, you know, I'm better than your, your younger son. And I deserve more than, 
than you've, than you've given to me. And I deserve more respect from you than you're showing me. Well, you know, Tim Keller says that even though there are Christians who really know and love Jesus, oftentimes because of our sinful nature, we become kind of elder brotherish in the way we treat people and we look down on people and we judge people and condemn people. Hardly without realizing it. And we expect that God will show favor to us because we're better than they are. One day I was sharing Christ in my neighborhood, going from door to door, talking to people about Christ. And I knocked on one door and the lady came to the door and she was very nice and gracious and kind. And we had a good conversation. And I, I turned the conversation to spiritual things and I asked her the question, uh, uh, have you come to the place where you're really sure you're going to heaven? And she says, well, I'm not really sure, but I, I certainly hope so. And I said, well, so, suppose you were to die tonight and you were to go to stand in the presence of God and God were to say, uh, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say to him? And hardly without thinking, she said, here's what I'd say. After all I've done for you, you'd better let me in. And I kind of smiled and I said, you, you've got to be kidding. She said, no, I'm serious. And by the way, this conversation is over. And she slammed the door in my face. And I was left in the cold. You see, God is not a quid, quid, quid pro quo God who he gives in response to what we do for him. Got a phone call the other day from an elder in Alabama who was asking for some advice concerning a conversation he had had with a, a lady who had joined the church about five years ago because her marriage was in such bad shape. But she said to my friend in a conversation, she said, I, I joined the church, but I've given up on God. And he said, what do you mean? She says, well, I joined the church because... I felt that God would help me in my marriage, and I've been praying earnestly that God would help me in my marriage and straighten my husband out, and he's worse than ever. So I'm through with God. That's not the father that Jesus is teaching about. The God who pays us back for being good. So that's the second lesson I learned as I reflected on my own elder brother role in my friend Tom's life. And then the final lesson I learned as I reflected on my role in Tom's life is that God our Heavenly Father wants all of his children at the party. He wants all of us there. As a matter of fact, I'm fascinated with the way he deals differently with each of the children, each of the boys. Uh, the younger boy leaves home, and there's no evidence at all that the father is making any effort to pursue him. And yet we're told in so many ways that 
he longed for him to come home. He would go to the window and he would stare and probably with tears streaming down his cheeks, he would wait to see if the boy happened to be coming back up the lane. And, and sometimes he would walk out on the front porch and he would stare longingly down the road, but he never hired a detective to go find him and to bring him home. And yet when he comes to the older brother, as soon as the father hears that the older brother is out in the yard and very angry and refuses to come in, he goes out and he puts his arm around him and says, won't you come in? You're precious to me. I love you very, very much. You're my precious child. Won't you come in? Uh, don't you realize that your brother who was lost is now found and who was dead is now alive? Won't you come in and celebrate with us? This is a party that we all ought to rejoice in and celebrate together. And that's the way the story ends. Don't you find it interesting that Jesus doesn't tell us how it all turned out? I think that's because he means for us to write our own ending to the story. We're to find our place in the story. Because every character in the story is a character with which we could identify at some point in our lives. The prodigal rebellious child, the self-righteous, judging, judgmental older son, or the heartbroken father who has children in the far country for whom he weeps and for whom he prays. We each write our part into the story because we're somewhere in that story. And Jesus doesn't give it a conclusion. And so Tom and I spent an entire year together planning out how he was to be reconciled. His wife, Pam, was also involved in it as well. We walked together down that long journey, and, uh, and it wasn't easy because there was a lot of pain, a lot of tears, a lot of anger expressed. As Tom and Pam begged people to forgive them, said with all humility how sorry they were that they had messed up so many people's lives and brought such reproach to the name of Christ. There were family members, there were children, there were former spouses. There was a whole congregation of people. There were elders. There were in-laws. But finally, after a year, the journey was over. 
He'd received the forgiveness of the presbytery and restored to the Lord's table. They were received, both Tom and Pam were received by the congregation and forgiven. And now in Nashville, they were ready to become a part of the family of God again. And so I arranged for them to meet with our elders. And the elders listened to their story and read the documents that the presbytery and the session of their previous church had written. Then the elders of the church gathered around them, laid hands on them and declared that they were restored and that they were being received into the fellowship of this church. And then Tom said, since our sin was such a public sin and did harm to so many people, we would love the opportunity to publicly acknowledge who we are and what we've done and what we've experienced from our good and gracious God before the congregation at Christ's press. And so on March 16th, 1997, I've got the bulletin, that service was held. Tom and Pam stood in this pulpit. They told their story with all humility and brokenness. They bore testimony to the kindness and mercy of God who had so graciously forgiven them because of Christ. And they said, we're so humble that the elders of this church are giving us the privilege of coming to the Lord's table and being a part of this fellowship. And after they had finished their testimony, <clears throat> I spoke briefly about the parable of the prodigal son. And we concluded that day, the service with a time of confession. And I said to the congregation what I've already said to you, each of us can find our place in this story. You might be the older brother, you might be the prodigal son, you might be a heartbroken parent. But using the kneelers on your knees, let's conclude our service by confessing our sin. The choir sang softly that wonderful tune, softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. And then we had a time of corporate confession and absolution of sin. And we sang a glorious hymn of praise and adoration, how great thou art, before we finally concluded. And then the, before the benediction, I said to the congregation, after the benediction, I want to suggest that everybody in this church come forward and give Tom and Pam a big hug and welcome them back into the family of God. It was a glorious day in the history of this congregation. March 16, 1997, I will never forget it. But the real question is, where are you in the story? With which character do you 
identify. And as you identify with that character, you find yourself confessing sin or praising God? Or do you find yourself a broken-hearted parent trusting God to do great and mighty things even as he did in the lives, in the life of the young prodigal son? The decision is up to us. But Jesus told this story not just for the scribes and Pharisees, he told it for us. Because in so many ways, we like them find it easy to be religious, but difficult to humble ourselves and repent of our sins and find our way back home. We're thankful, Father, for this wonderful story which never gets old, which, which is just rich with meaning. We are thankful, Father, for the Holy Spirit who has preserved it, for those who've expounded it down through the ages, and for your presence here today to speak to our hearts and make it afresh. Do your perfect work, we pray, because you're God who loves like the loving Father who loved his sons and yearned for them to be home again. In Jesus' name, amen.